feel like the music has just placed the ball on the tee. Now I'm just going to try not to miss it. I, um, before I get started, I do appreciate those of you who stopped and asked about Carrie. Carrie on Thursday, if you haven't heard Carrie, uh, Thursday evening, Carrie and a horse went in two very different directions and um, she hit the ground hard and uh, has broke several ribs in her pelvis and uh, fractured a vertebra and uh, she's still in the hospital, had surgery Friday night, but she's doing better and uh, go, probably going to go to inpatient uh, rehab. And uh, I've just been, of course, so grateful for those of you who've known about and uh, expressed your concern for her. She's going to be okay and we're grateful that um, of course, it could have been a lot worse, and we're grateful, grateful that she is going to be okay. All right, let's talk about something a little more fun than that. Several weeks ago, I mentioned uh, Mrs. Ann Hodges of Silicaga, and uh, that afternoon, November the 30th, 1954, when Ann Hodges laid down for a nap after lunch, and, um, and a meteorite crashed through the roof and the ceiling and uh, hit a table next to the couch and busted up an old radio and ricocheted off and bruised her uh, hip. And Ms. Hodges became famous as the, the only person ever recorded to have been hit by a falling meteorite. Well, I want to talk about another event in uh, Alabama astronomy. Do you know the song, Stars Fell on Alabama? I'm tempted to hum it, but I won't. It used to be on our license plate, that phrase, stars fell on Alabama. Well, that's actually a, a tender song. It's a romantic song. Kissing is involved in the song, under the moonlight in the cotton field. One of the verses of that song reads, my heart beat like a hammer, my arms wound around you tight, and stars fell on Alabama last night. But the real story of stars falling on Alabama is, and the song itself and the phrase itself, they're rooted in something much more dramatic than a kiss in the moonlight in the cotton field. It was November 13, 1833, when the stars seemed in fact to be falling in the skies over Alabama. I emailed uh, Dr. John Christie, who's sitting back there. He's our state climatologist and a member of our church. And I, I emailed him and I said, you're going to like the sermon on Sunday, at least part of it. And I told him about, I mentioned the phrase, stars fell on Alabama, and he responded. It was a tremendous uh, Leonid meteor shower created by the fragments from the comet Temple Tuttle. I knew that, but it was nice for John to <laughs> confirm, <laughs> confirm what I already knew. Lots of folks that night saw what we now know to have been a rare, amazing meteor shower and believed, they believed it was the end of time, Judgment Day. Bill Cook, an astronomer at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center said, the sky was literally filled with fireworks and people thought it was the end of the world. That was the night stars fell on Alabama and most of North America. Catherine Tucker Wyndham, in her book, Alabama, One Big Front Porch, wrote, Thousands of Alabamians, thinking the end of the world was at hand when they saw the heavenly spectacle, fell to their knees and pled to plead for mercy and forgiveness. Others promised eternal renunciation of sin, in parenthesis. The big ones, card playing, dancing, 
whiskey drinking, cursing, and associated vices, if they were spared whatever catastrophes were in the offing. Still others jumped upon horses and tried to outrace the fearful menace they believed was pursuing them. It was a meteor shower, of course, not the, the end of time. But one can understand why they thought it might be. Listen to these words from Revelation 6. This is dramatic language describing the indescribable, the, the, the culmination of history, the second coming of the Lord. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Certainly we can see why they thought this was the end of the world. Certainly we can understand why they thought that history as we know it was coming to its conclusion. It was not, but one day it will be. And by the way, those who are alive to see that will not be able to jump on their horses or in their cars or on their hoverboards or any other means of transportation to outrun it. The second coming of Jesus will bring history as we know it to its God-planned conclusion and will be nothing like we ever have known. The Bible uses varied and multiple images to describe that indescribable event. It uses dramatic language, melodramatic, hyperdramatic language because we just don't have, we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have any we don't have any categories to fit this into. We can't say, you know, when Jesus comes back, it will be like that day when, because there's ne there never has been a day when to which we can compare it. So the Bible uses, again, multiple and varied images and, and dramatic and melodramatic images like the blood turning red and the skies falling. But let me pull over just for a moment and, and, and remind us that there are people who've taken those images to places that the images were never intended to take us. There are lots of people who've looked at those images and tried to decipher them. And instead of seeing them as indescribable mysteries, they've tried to figure things out and even predicted. You know, there are lots of folks who predicted the time when Jesus would come, the dates even. And, and then the times so the dates came and went and all of us were embarrassed because people lump us all together. Even the fringe groups of the Christian faith, those who are obsessed with the ends of time, uh, they lump, a lot of people lump us all together. So lots of us have been embarrassed when fellow Christians obsessed with the ends of, end of time, have predicted dates that have come and gone. And then there are others who've divided us over this, people who've been so dogmatic about their understanding of the end of time that they have believed that the people who didn't agree with them on the details were, didn't believe the Bible, and so they wanted to divide the body of Christ, the church, over that. These images were never intended, intended to be so, so literally interpreted that they, we would, would, would predict that how things gonna happen, are going to happen and, and, and certainly were never intended to divide us. But we are supposed to take those images seriously because they point to a literal coming reality. N.T. Wright, I, I like the way he said it. He said that the language of the Bible, speaking of the coming of Jesus, are like a set of signposts that point into the mist. You can't see far beyond the signposts, but they point to something real. And the signposts don't have a, a photograph of what you'll find when you get to the destination. You just know that the signpost is accurate in that it is pointing in the right direction to something that is real. The images, the language of the Bible is like that set of signposts pointing into a, 
into a mist. And one of the most beautiful images of the second coming of Jesus is that of the wedding. In Revelation 19, for example, it talks about the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. In the Middle East, and even some places in the world today, or in the Middle East of Jesus' day, and in some places in the world today, weddings are not one-day events. They're all-week events. A couple of our folks, Susan Young and Susie Young and Cynthia Futural, went to a big wedding in India recently of a well-to-do Indian family, and it lasted all week with big parties and dinners. And that was, that's the image in Revelation 19. And Jesus picks up on that image here in this story in Matthew 25. And he talks about the the ten virgins who were awaiting the coming of the of the groom. Let's look at at some of the things we can learn from that. Number one, the groom, Jesus, will come when we don't expect it, and some will be unprepared. Jesus told us this happy, sad story of those who were waiting, who were waiting for the groom, and when he came. By the way, don't get hung up on the details. Who were the ten virgins, some might ask? Were they the bridegrooms? Where's the bride? Remember, parables are not intended to be picked apart. They, they're intended, so just go with the story. They're intended to make a point, not to get mired down in the details. So these people are waiting for the groom to come. And they all carried little lamps. In fact, I had one with me in the 815 service, and I forgot to bring it in here. But it's just, it's a little handheld lamp that they would have carried with the, the wick, it was the personalized uh, flashlight of the day. And uh, some didn't have enough oil for their lamps. So when word came at midnight that the bridegroom was on his way, five of the virgins that were waiting said, oh, we're not going to have enough oil, so would you, could you spare some? And the others said, no, we won't have enough for us, so go to the store and get some. So they ran to Walmart. It's open 24 hours. So they ran, ran to Walmart to get some. And they found the oil, finally found the oil section. And, and then when they went out, there were 52 uh, lanes to check out, but only two were open. And so they, the lines were long and, and they waited for a while. Then they, th they thought, let's go through the express lane. So they went over to the express lane, 12 items or less, but the guy in front of them had 32 items and it took forever and they were, and they were late getting back or something like that. They were late getting back and the door had closed to the reception. Jesus tells the story of people who were waiting for the groom and to some who were not prepared. The point being, of course, if we're not prepared, we miss the celebration altogether. The second point is that those who are prepared are the wise. They are the wise ones. Imagine with me a church building. It's 510 p.m. on a Saturday. At 6 p.m., uh, there's going to be a wedding at that building. Everybody's there except the groom. It's 510. People are looking at their watches. Some of them tease the bride. The bride is up there in the bride's room, and she's applying the last-minute touches to an already radiant face. And, and people tease her, and they say, I, I told you he wouldn't. I told you he'd back out. Some of them tease the bride because, quite frankly, they're, they're a little worried that he might not show, and they're trying to cover that up. Everybody's worried, it seems, except the bride, because she knows him. 
She doesn't know why he's late, but she knows he's coming. She doesn't know that he, he came across on the way to the church. He came across a little old lady who had a flat tire on the side of the road and he stopped and changed her tire for her. She doesn't know why he was late, but she knows he's late, and she, but she knows he's coming. There are lots of skeptics. Lots of, lots of people are, are skeptical of, of the, the return of Jesus. I understand that. And one of the reasons is that there have been so many predictions that have been errant, that have not come to pass. And, and yet the, the bride, and the bride is the church with a capital C, the bride, the universal family of people whose hope is in Jesus. The bride should, m must never, must never doubt that the groom is coming. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak of the return of Jesus. There's a lot more ink in the New Testament speaking of his second coming than, than is given to his first coming, his birth in Bethlehem. And the image is celebratory, it's happy, it's, it's something to look forward to, but we can't miss the other part of the story, and that is the ten who were not uh, prepared. Because there is a wideness to God's mercy, that's true. And there's an amazingness to his grace. But there also is a sobering severity to his righteous judgment. So I want, to, I want us to enter the story for a moment. The five who were not prepared have gone off uh, to get oil. And then, and the, Diane read a moment ago, and the door was closed. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the echo, the thud, and the echo of that door closing. And then I want you to feel when the, when the, when the, when the five virgins return and the door is closed and they can, hear the, they can hear the music on the other side. Feel the, feel the desperation of their pleas. Let us in! And feel the weight of the groom's response. Remember what he said? He said, I tell you the truth, I, I don't know you. The image of the wedding and the, the celebration, we should, we should take that in and enjoy that, but we shouldn't, miss the, we shouldn't miss the weight of the rest of the, of the story. So the, the parable that Jesus tells, tells us that the groom is coming and, and some are not going to be ready and then, and then tells us that those who are ready are the, the wise ones. Uh, finally, um, the parable tells us that in the meantime, the, we wait. In the meantime, we wait. When God inspired Paul to write to Titus, he said, we await our blessed hope. Our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a world that is tumultuous and seemingly tumultuous-er every week, we wait for the God-appointed culmination of history. History is not just wandering, meandering aimlessly. We are headed toward a God-ordained, God-planned conclusion. When the, when the Lord Jesus uh, will, will return. 
From 1981 to 1983, I was a missionary journeyman in Venezuela. And Carrie Williams and I had been dating at Samford, and um, she came down to visit me, stayed with, some, um, stayed with a missionary family, and, and we got engaged on a, on a beach, on a Caribbean beach at a little beach called Cata. Um, a couple of weeks later, Carrie was returning to the United States right the week of Thanksgiving, and she would come back and she would make plans for the, the wedding, which would come up the following July in Gadsden. And I didn't have to pick out the sheets and the plates and all that, and I was really grateful I didn't have to go through all that. So um, we were engaged. She was getting ready to come back to the States, and we went out to dinner in a place called Ciudad Ojeda. And uh, afterwards, uh, we, we decided to take a, a sunset drive down along Lake Maracaibo, which is just beautiful. But the sun was falling quickly, and it had rained that day. <clears throat> and ahead of us, uh, in the dusk, we could see, uh, I don't want to say puddle, because it was like a small pond that stretched all across the road. And I stopped to assess the situation. And I said, um, I, I think I can make it. And Carrie said, uh, there's no way we'll get through that. Well, you know, this was early. This, we were not yet married, but I needed to establish myself as, you know, the one who can be trusted in such matters of import as this. And sometimes a man just got to do what a man's got to do. So I put the pedal to the metal and I hit that water like a man on a mission. We sank like a rock in the water. And uh, I opened the door and the mud was up to the, to the doors. To this day, I'm grateful. Carrie did not say I told you so. I know she wanted to, but she didn't. So I got out and I went around and I helped her out through the mud. Uh, the sky was beyond the horizon. I mean, the sun was beyond the horizon now, and it was, it was dark. And if I, I, I can't, I, I don't think I can describe to you uh, adequately how desolate we, the place was where we were. It was the middle of nowhere. And uh, no lights of, of town in sight. And we did the only thing we could do. We began to walk. We walked down that dirt road till we heard a man headed toward us singing. Uh, he had um, he'd been to the local bar and he'd had too much and he was walking down the road toward us. I explained to him our situation and he said, I can, I can help you. He said, let's take, let's take uh, the missus here to, to my house. So we walked to his place, and I wish I could describe the place to you. A lean-to shack. There was only one room that I saw. Maybe there were others, but kids were running around everywhere. There was an open fire. There was a pot over the fire, and I remember uh, a leg sticking up out of the fire, which I assumed to be a calf's leg, but supper was boiling. And um, the wife was as sweet as she could be. She welcomed Carrie, was so glad. She's just so sweet. But uh, Carrie speaks not a word of Spanish. She doesn't know C from no. She has no, doesn't, know any, doesn't know any Spanish. 
And the family with whom she was staying, or we, the house we'd gone to, they didn't speak a word of Spanish. But we, just, we decided that she would stay there. Now get this. I, and I did think if, if her daddy could see me, he would kill me for doing this. So this is, there's this little lean-to shack, open fire, calf legs sticking out of the pot. Carrie sat down on a, if you can imagine a hammock that stretched out this way, she sat down in the hammock and, and I left. I disappeared into the darkness with this man who had too much to drink. And, and Carrie um, didn't know the culture. She was, she was very much, a, she's never been more of a foreigner than she was that night. Didn't know the culture, didn't know the language, didn't know the people. And I disappeared into the night. And an hour passed. And another hour passed. And sure enough, the guy I was with knew two guys with an old pickup truck and a chain. So we went down to um, where my car was. And after three hours in a strange place, the headlights of my car illumined that little lean-to shack. And the groom had come for his bride. The Bible calls us aliens and strangers here. The culture sometimes seems foreign, does it not? The language almost indecipherable. I wish I had, I wish I had the language to describe it, but even the Bible doesn't. That one day the clouds will will roll back like a scroll. And we will experience our blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus. The groom is coming for his bride. And I say this with all my heart, I hope you are ready.